strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. People have been fascinated about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and this evening we're going to understand very clearly what these are all about. You know Hollywood of course has had its ideas about, um, about uh, the four horsemen. I noticed back in 1921 they put a film together on the four horsemen Then, of course in 1962 but they were a lot different than we'll read in the book of Revelation believe me all about the they have in common is the name, the four horsemen. Everything else is certainly a lot different. Now, I want to just review one or two things this evening. You will remember, those of you who have been with us, that we are looking at two books, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. In our first program, we noticed this great image on your left, Daniel chapter 2. We noticed these four metals. We have not yet looked at Daniel chapter 7, but next weekend, it's a mind-boggling program. We have looked at Daniel chapter 8, and we noticed the rise of Medo-Persia and Greece and the first king of Greece, the United Greek Empire. The Bible mentioned them by name. When you look at the book of Daniel, these three great prophecies present four superpowers and they go from Daniel's time, the time in which he's writing in, taking us to the end times. That's the way Daniel's visions are given. Four great prophecies, in fact, but we'll be looking at three of them during this series. Four great prophecies from the time of Daniel he marches us down through time to the end times. Now, each vision that he has takes a slightly different perspective over the same time period. Either a political one, a religious one, or whatever. That's the way Daniel's book is structured. Now, that should therefore be no surprise that John's book, The Revelation, in the first half is structured the same way. We encounter in the book of Revelation, the first half, John sees messages to the seven churches. These messages take us through seven periods of the history of Christianity. They begin with the story of the cross at that time, and they march us on down through the ages until we come to the end times again. This is repeated when we come to the message of the seven seals, but a slightly different angle of that time period now. These march us again down from the time of the death of Jesus down to the end times. And the last of the three great visions in the first half of the book of Revelation are the message of the seven trumpets. These take us again from the time of the cross down on through to the end times again. That's the way John is given these great visions and the time period that they span. Just like Daniel in Revelation covers from his day down to the end, so John does because he's living at the period of the cross time down to the end of time. Now, the seven seals, in those seven seals, we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's where they fit in the book of Revelation. They are the first four 
of John's seven seals in his vision. Now we watch with John as he looks into the future from his day down on through time. John in chapter 4 of Revelation is taken right into the very throne room of the universe. He sees God Almighty on the throne, but he notices in his right hand there is a scroll book. And this scroll book is sealed with seven seals. We'll understand that more tomorrow, why they sealed them this way and what it all signifies. By the way, some of you saw in the last weekend, we had those bullet. remember? Some of you noticed those we had on display, those little pieces of clay that were pressed over the string that hold, held those documents together, those sealed documents. And uh, when a fire destroyed the whole thing, all that would be left with that, with that clay bullet baked with the seal impression on it. That's exactly what we have in the hand. And we'll understand much more tomorrow in the second half. So a scroll book is sealed with seven seals and it's in the right hand of God Almighty on the throne. John then sees that a lamb steps forward and breaks the seals of this scroll book. That's what he sees next in the sixth chapter. So this vision begins in chapter four and we're going to discover tomorrow it ends in chapter eight. One great vision, but beginning in this way. Now, when the lamb breaks the seals, notice what it tells us here. This is how John portrays <coughs> the lamb opening them. Now, when he had taken the scroll, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So now as the lamb, which as we've seen represents Jesus, by the way, 28 times in the book of Revelation, we see the lamb, a symbol of Jesus who was crucified for the world. He takes the scroll and he is going to open the book by breaking the seals. In other words, we're going to see over the next two days that for the last 2,000 years, Christ has been working toward his return for his people. And every seal that he breaks is a successive stage toward that great event down through history, from the cross down to the end of time. A successive step in that great event when eternity comes to light into being. We have it in our hand. Now, we noticed last uh, weekend before, we looked at Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus sat here on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He gave signs of his coming and of the end of the world. Now, we're going to notice, especially tomorrow, as we look at these seals, that we see some very great similarities to what Jesus had to say when he was up here in, uh, on the Mount of Olives. We're going to see some parallels uh, very clearly, especially tomorrow in the second part of the program. All right. The events that Jesus gave here on the Mount of Olives take us from the apostles' time, his time, ran on the early church. This is when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Remember that in our first, second program. We looked at all of that, that he prophesied, he predicted those events before they came. Then he moves us on down through what we call today, historically, the Dark Ages. He mentioned some things there. And then he ends with the end time events. 
And this is very similar to what we're going to see when we come to the seven seals of Revelation. Now, as we said, the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So let's get into them tonight. The first seal, John says, he saw a white horse, as it were, come riding out of the pages of the Revelation. John says, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures. There were four creatures around the throne of God. And he said, he said in a voice like thunder, come. I looked, he says, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, what is going on here? First of all, we'll notice that this covers the first century, if we would, from the cross of Jesus down to the end of that first century. This is the time period that John is portraying for us, and we can see it very clearly as we look here now. Now, let me just say something. In the book of Revelation, there are many symbols. One of them I just mentioned a moment ago is 28 times the lamb is mentioned in Revelation. This is not referring to a four-footed lamb running around or something. This is a symbol of Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what that represents. And there are many other symbols, and the Bible helps us to understand. In fact, these are interpreted by the Bible. We don't have to guess at it. We go to the rest of the ancient biblical manuscripts and they help us understand these symbols. Now, let's have a look at the first one. White in the Bible or light is a symbol of righteousness and truth, that which belongs to God, if we could put it that way. Notice in Revelation chapter 19, John sees a woman who's to be married to Christ. This is the bride of the lamb, he calls it. Notice what he says. The marriage of the lamb has come and his wife, meaning his people, have made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed or clothed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So this idea of a white horse represents that which is righteousness and truth, that which belongs to God. Notice in Revelation 19 also, John sees a picture of Jesus coming as symbolized on a white horse. And we'll understand what that means in another program. He comes as a great conqueror, in fact. But notice what it says here in talking about this great event. Now, he says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean followed him on white horses. So we got the idea here. We don't have to guess at it. This is a symbol for God's great truth and righteousness. Now, a bow and a crown are weapons of warfare. The crown is a special type of a crown here in the Greek. It means a victor's crown. So here is successful, victorious warfare, meaning from the side of God. So a successful, victorious campaign. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
Christianity is pictured again and again as being at war with against evil. The forces of evil against the forces of light or righteousness. That's how it's portrayed in the biblical records. Paul, in the, his book to the letter to the Ephesians, he talks about we need to get, put on the armor of God in this great fight against the enemy of every one of us, the devil or Satan. Now, Christianity of the first century was indeed very victorious and very triumphant in its progress in the first century. Notice the way Paul put it when he wrote in one of his letters, I am grateful that God always makes it possible for Christ to lead us to victory. He says God also helps us spread the knowledge, he says, about Christ everywhere. And this knowledge is like the smell of perfume, he says. In other words, it's very triumphant and it's moving everywhere. And it certainly was in the first century. Look at the spread of Christianity in just the first 60 or 70 years. Of course, it began down here in Jerusalem back in the days of Jesus the Christ. And when he returned to heaven, the disciples, his apostles carried on his work. It spread quickly up there to Antioch in Syria. And then Paul took it here to what we call Asia Minor or what we would call Turkey today. He then moved across and planted it in Greece. And finally, it came up into the Roman Empire itself, into the capital of the Roman Empire. All this very, very quickly in the first century. Amazing, triumphant progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that first century. In fact, notice Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he writing to his friends in that little place in Asia Minor or Turkey, he says, the good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. The good news that God loves everybody and has a plan for their life and a hope for the future. He says, I've taken it everywhere in the then known world back in his day. So a very triumphant movement. In fact, let me just share with you how amazing it was that Paul was able to do what he did so quickly. Here we are in Cyprus at the Odeon, the theatre here in, on, in Paphos. Now, if you've ever read the story in the book of Acts, you'll learn that there was a governor <coughs> or a proconsul, we call them, in the Roman Empire in this place and in, uh, in Cyprus at the city of Paphos, whose name was Sergius Paulus. And this man was deeply impressed with the knowledge that Paul was sharing about the goodness of God and his love for people. And he wanted to follow in that way. But there was a sorcerer, a magician, a psychic who was opposed to Paul. And Paul got frustrated one day and he said, in the name of Jesus, and the man lost his sight right then and there. And Sergius Paulus was amazed, deeply impressed with the power that Paul had that he could put down this opposition in such a way. Now, Sergius Paulus became a follower of Jesus. He found a new hope and a meaning and a purpose in life. And we know this man existed, not only because the Bible says so, but we have inscriptions with this man's name on it. Here's one of them from Antioch. This man is mentioned. We've even found one in Paphos itself and another that comes from the Emperor Claudius mentioning Sergius Paulus and scholars believe it's probably referring to the same person. So this man was a very influential man and Paul was able to help him find a new hope in life. Paul came here to Corinth, which was one of the great cities in Greece. Corinth was a great sea 
port, trading right across the Mediterranean world. And Paul came here and preached the gospel. In fact, you notice this picture here on your right here. This is known as the beamer, the judgment seat, because Paul was brought here by his Jewish enemies who hated what he was doing and taken before the judge Gallio, who's also mentioned in history. But interestingly, when Paul was here, many people came to Christ, one of whom was the name, a man by the name of Erastus. And archaeologists have found this tablet on the, in the pavement with this man's name on it. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. And here we find the very man. It turns out that he happened to be the treasurer. We call him, let's read this, the inscription here, Erastus, in return for his idolship, which means he was the treasurer and in charge of the public works in Corinth. He laid the pavement at his own expense. That's what this inscription tells us. This man is mentioned in the Bible and he's mentioned right here in a stone pavement at Corinth. He became a follower of Jesus Christ through the work of Paul in that first century. So you can see that's what we're talking about. That's what the, new, the book of Revelation is telling us. The white horse is triumphant. It's going everywhere with the good news of God's love. Paul came here to Ephesus. Here we are in the forum over here. The forum is where the business took place. You may remember if you read the book of Acts, how that the Ephesians were very much worshippers of Diana or Artemis, the great god of the, 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 the people in this part of the world. And the silversmiths who made these little gods or statues of Diana or Artemis, they were getting very concerned because many people now were following Jesus Christ and they weren't worshipping these things anymore and their trade was going down. So they started a riot in the city of Ephesus. It lasted for two hours, according to the writings of Luke in the book of Acts. And they, this is where they had the riot, right here in the theatre that we have here in Ephesus. And Paul, again, brought many people to a new hope and a new purpose in life and a new way of living. Even, in fact, the Bible says in Nero's palace, there were many people who were following the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans have left some interesting um, writings about this. This is Pliny the Younger. And uh, notice what he wrote. Many of every age of rank and sex are being brought to trial. Why are they being brought to trial? He says, for the contagion of that superstition. He calls it a superstition, meaning Christianity. It has spread over not only, he says, cities, but villages and the country. Another Roman writer wrote this. You are everywhere talking about the Christians. You are in our army. You are in our navy. You are in our schools. You are in our homes, our prisons, and even in our Senate. You can see that's what John was portraying when he saw that horse ride out, conquering and to conquer. This is exactly what took place when we trace the history of the first century. Now, let me just say before we move on, you and I can be victorious over this same enemy of our soul today, over Satan and sin today. We can live a life of great power and victory. In fact, notice what Paul wrote to his friends in Rome. Yet in all these things, in all the troubles of life, he's saying, and we all have troubles, to every life, some difficulties come. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he wrote one more, or John 
One of the other followers of Jesus wrote these words, whatever is born of God. In other words, whoever has a new life through the power of God, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I have seen this myself in different situations in my work. I remember when I was living in Fiji with my family and uh, I was a lecturer and we had many students from all over the Pacific and in fact from Australia as well. I remember Vilele, he came from Melbourne. Vilele had been a Samoan gang member in Melbourne. He hated the police with a vengeance. If he saw a police car coming to him down the road in Melbourne, he would drive his car straight for the police as fast as he could and they'd have to get out of the road. Well, they put him in, in prison and solitary confinement. And one day somebody visited Vialelli in jail and threw a Bible under his door. When he saw that thing, there was no way he was going to read this thing. He had no time for such nonsense, he said. But you get bored in prison, don't you? And eventually Vialelli picked up that Bible and he began to read it. And the message of the gospel, the good news of God, changed his life. And Vialelli came out to Fiji to study. He hadn't done much study before, I can tell you, but he came out there to study. And I remember we used to go out for five or six weeks running programs like this and we would rent a house and we'd all bring our sleeping bags and put them on the ground and we had to fill up the house with some of the, the young guys who were helping me and we would sleep like that. And Vilele slept with me, beside me, for five weeks. I could have put my wallet on my on my mattress with $500, $600 in it, and not $1 would go missing. But roll back 10 years ago, and I tell you what, he'd slit the throat for the stuff. You know what I mean? This is the great change that takes place in the lives of people, and that's exactly what was taking place in the Mediterranean world in the first century. And God can do the same for your life and my life today. So seal number one, from the cross... From 31 AD, it takes us down to 100 AD, the first century of the Christian age. And what is sort of a picture do we have? We have a picture of the Christianity that is triumphant. The gospel is spreading everywhere very rapidly. Now John sees, as he, open, as, as he looks next, he sees the second seal is open and a red horse comes out. John says, as we read on, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out. He says, a fiery red one. Its rider, he says, was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large Sword. It's very easy to understand what's going on here. Red in the Bible and a sword is a symbol of war and bloodshed and strife and difficulty. This is very clear when you read the rest of the Bible. In fact, notice what Jesus himself said talking to his followers. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I am not, I did not come, he says, to bring peace, but a sword. Now, we want, what's going on here? Well, let's keep reading. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. There's going to be trouble here, he's saying. 
For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be those in his own household. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. When you become a follower of mine, when you accept me, you can rest assured that there will be people who oppose you because you've accepted me. And many of us have found that that's very true what Jesus did. Some of our own family turn against us simply because we follow God and the ways of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but Jesus was pointing out that this is what happens when you follow me. You don't have so much peace. You have a sword. Now, we have peace, as he's going to say in a minute, but that doesn't mean we don't have troubles. We do have troubles, but we're going to notice in a moment there is peace inside, however. Now, the second seal takes us from 100 AD down to 313 AD. And we can see very clearly from the history that followed this, this is exactly what took place. You will probably have heard of the persecutions by the Romans against the Christians in those next two centuries. It was very vigorous from time to time. (coughs) For example, here we are at the Circus Maximus. (coughs) Pardon me. The Circus Maximus is like a, we call it a hippodrome, a horse racing place, if you would. You will notice here, we have a little model of it here, what it must have looked like back in the days of Paul. This is where the horses ran around here, and it's the stadium. Thousands of people packed this place, the Circus Maximus, so that they could watch the games and so on. Thank you so much, Ray. Let me just uh, take a bit of water here. That'll be great. Appreciate that. We have a good team. Have you noticed the good team we have in this place? Uh, you, as you're greeted each evening and the people who are helping out, we are just uh, so grateful for the team that we have. And we thank you for that, Ray, for coming down and helping me there. Right, the Circus Maximum, that's what it looks like today. But once thousands of people were gathered here because the Romans loved their games. Another place where they gathered for their games was here at the Colosseum. Some of you have been here to the Colosseum. Thousands of people packed these arenas to watch the games that the Romans put on for their citizens. Now, the games were real. This wasn't some movie that people come in here to watch. This was the real deal. They watched the gladiators kill each other. Thumbs up and the guy lived who was underneath. Thumbs down and the knife, the sword went through him. You can see this incredible picture here on the right, on the left, I should say, of the people watching the games. Some of them are eating their dinner. Others of them are writing graffiti on the walls in some of the pictures. Ladies are doing their hair. They're cooking their dinner. And all these things while people in the arena are being butchered and slaughtered and gored to death. This was the way the Romans enjoyed life. And it actually helped to bring down their civilization. We cannot feast on violence and not it affect society. And this is what happened in ancient Rome. But not only was it the gladiators, the Romans liked to see the Christians die. 
And many Christians lost their lives, especially in the Circus Maximus, but also in the Colosseum, simply because they would not offer a pinch of incense on an altar to a pagan god of the Romans or to the emperor. They wouldn't swear allegiance to the emperor. They lost their lives right here in these great amphitheaters. You will notice that some of the people in the back here are the lights for the games here. They would pour tar over their bodies, set them alight so that they had light in the arena, while others that were fed to the lions here in these places. Little wonder that Jesus in the book of Revelation, when he talks about this period, he says, be faithful to death and I will give you a crown of life. Yes, we may suffer, but the best is yet to come. There is eternity coming. No question about it. The good thing that Jesus indicated that even though he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, meaning we will have trouble around us, he said, you'll have peace within. You'll be able to have a wonderful attitude on life. Notice what he said. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. So you will have peace. Never was there a person attacked more than Jesus Christ. His whole life when he began his work, he was always attacked by the Jewish leaders. But never was there a person with more peace in his mind and his life. In the world you will have tribulation, you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer, he said, I have overcome the world. And then he said these magnificent words before he died to his followers. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know, my friends, this evening, troubles come to all people, even to those who follow Jesus, but there is a peace within. I can remember visiting Tom in hospital in New Zealand. Every time you went to visit Tom, he was always cheerful and positive, but he was dying from the toes to his head. A serious uh, disease that was eating the myelin sheath around his nerves and eventually he choked to death. But he was always positive and cheerful because he had Jesus in his life. That's what Jesus was talking about. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Here in this second seal is a period of great trouble. This takes us for the Christian church from 100 AD down to 313 AD when physical persecution took place in many different time periods during those 200 years. A persecuted Christianity, but also a people who had a peace about them in those periods of time. The third seal, John sees a black horse. Notice what he said. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, he says, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it, he says, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures that's around the throne saying, a quarter of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, that's a coin, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, what is going on here? Well, of course, in the Bible, black or darkness is a symbol 
for Satan's kingdom of sin and evil. That's the way it's portrayed. Notice the way Paul put it here into his friends in Colossae. He, talking of God, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Once we belong and followed Satan, he's saying, but God delivers us from that way of living. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. He's put us in a new way of life, in other words, that follows Jesus the Christ. Now, this seal represents or pictures the history from 313 down to about 538 AD now. And let me share with you how we can see that. You see, John is telling us that sadly, evil is going to invade the Christian church. You will notice we started with white, we went to red, now we've gone to black. There's a progression actually in the color as we see. But evil now is to invade the church. And how was this going to happen? Well, it's all to do with those scales in the hand of the rider. What's all that about? You will notice what it says. John says he saw balances in his hand. Now, balances in the ancient world were not only symbols of judgment, but in the real world, they were used to weigh food of the people. Now, he says one measure of wheat, he says which is for one man for one day's wages. That's how much a measure of wheat was. So one man for his day's wages. Now, what about his wife? What about his kids? You see, one measure of wheat or one man's day's wages and three measures of barley for one man for one day's wages. Now, barley in ancient times was the food for the poor people and the animals. It wasn't something that sort of the middle class used to eat this was for the poor people or the animals but three measures of barley is for just for one man is selling for one day's wages in other words what is going on here we have a famine going on exorbitant prices for wheat and barley that's what he's telling us here from the ancient world very costly food Now, this is not a physical famine so much. This is talking about a famine for God's word because bread or food like this in the Bible is a symbol for the word of God, the message of God. Notice the way Jesus put it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, those who come to me just as they are, shall never hunger. And my friend, that is so true tonight. Those people who come to Christ and accept him and give him their life, they never hunger in that deep sense of living. Not for the spiritual things, the real food. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. It is the spirit, he said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, he said, they are spirit and they are life. Because the words of Jesus lead to eternal life. Physical food only lasts for this life. And then he said to the devil when he was being tempted by Satan, if you've ever read the story, he said to Satan, he answered and said, it is written. In this book, he said, in the Bible, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would that our world today, our country, this city would live by the words that come from the mouth of God. Let me tell you, it would be a different country. It would be a different city if people lived by the words of God, because these are the words of life. These are the words that transform individuals, that transform families, that transform a society. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.